So this is the second part of a series that is actually ending today. This will be the last. It's just a two-sermon uh, series. We may uh, entertain, uh, um, I may go back and, and maybe add to it later on. But next week, just to let you know, we are going to talk about um, service and humility. And, when, and, and just think about this question this week. Can you effectively serve Christ whatever that looks like, without humility? Can you do that? We're going to look at that question next week, so make a point to be with us. Last week, uh, we, we talked about um, uh, God's not messing with you and asking the question, is God stringing you along? And, and we talked about Simeon, and Simeon w- received this promise. We don't know when he received the promise. Uh, it could have been a ago, uh, a month ago, or a year ago, or it could have been um, a decade ago, but um, because of that, uh, that promise he received that he would not die before he had seen the consolation of Israel, which is a Jewish way of saying the Messiah, that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah, he went to the temple every day believing the promise. And after a while, I would imagine that he gets to a point where he is um, wondering if this promise is ever going to be fulfilled. Or this promise, uh, maybe God is just stringing him along. But he continues. He continues to do this. You see, when you string somebody along, you you really want to keep that person in a state of uncertainty by leading them with false hopes and giving them false promises and, and maybe even just leading them without any real intention of following through. Now, this is a slippery slope here in our faith, and you could, I'm not going to rehash it, but just to say this, that sometimes we think that this is the case with God, that he's just stringing us, he's given us these promises. But the promise, we think, is so far-fetched or so out there or so long away that maybe over time the excitement has waned and we get to this place where we just think, man, God... Are you just stringing us along? The lesson is this. Simeon's confidence was in the promise maker, not the promise itself. And I think that's important. It's one who gives the promise that we actually lean into. Now today, God not messing with you means that uh, we're going to ask this question. Is God pulling your leg? Is God pulling your leg? So when you, when we're stringing some along, someone along is when that person is given false hope. When you pull someone's leg, it's about a situation where someone is told an exaggerated story or they're given false information in order to do this. They, they are given this information or exaggerated story in order to trick them into believing something's not true, Right? Now, I know it sounds like it's splitting hairs, right? I know that it sounds really similar to, to last week. You know, you could say that, well, the promise keeper, the promise is true. It's not stringing us along. It will happen. Maybe there's an ounce of, of uh, faith and confidence and belief that we have to have to do that. But if you want to just kind of see these two separately, you could look at it this way. When you string someone along, you think God is benevolent when he is malicious, right? You, you think the promise is good for you, right? You think God is benevolent. Oh, look at this promise. But God has no intention of following through on that. 
and he becomes malicious, right? That's not what we think about God. God's not stringing us along. Whereas when God is pulling your leg, we think that God is malicious when he's really benevolent. You see what I mean? Maybe. Maybe it'll get a little clearer as we go. When you think of, of someone who has pulled your leg, when you think of someone who has pulled your leg, maybe they've told you an exaggerated story, what feelings do you get? I think of a, uh, a, uh, I think of a playground where, you know, the, the story is told from one uh, older kid, a fifth grader, to a third grader, and an exaggerated story, and, and, and the end result is to get them to this place where other people are just laughing at them. I can't believe you believe that. I was just pulling your leg. And then if they're really gullible, you get to a place where you, uh, you know, feed on that gullibility. Is that a word, gullibility, guttableness? I don't know. That they are just going to listen to you or whatnot. And you get to this place where you're just continually just, just um, the, the, the older one is doing this to the younger one. What, what feelings do you think that little kid has? Or maybe if you can think of the greatest storyteller. Who comes to your mind? And each time that person tells you a story, there's a little bit more what? Embellishment? There's a little bit more uh, lies or a um, little bit more creativity. They're not lies. It's just creativity, right, in that story. And the longer the story is told and the longer the embellishment goes, maybe day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you get to this moment over time when you realize you have no idea where the truth of the story begin, ends and the truth ends. Rather, you don't have any idea where the truth, uh, where the story begins, where the embellishment begins and the truth ends. I knew I was going to get that straight. But you understand, right, what I'm talking about. Now, my storyteller is my pap, is my grandfather. Man, you, you, I remember going to 30 Mary Street, and I would sit at 30 Mary Street, and, and we would have these, these, these questions as, as young grandchildren, grandsons, and, 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 you know, Pap, tell us about uh, um, the olden days. Tell us about you growing up. What was it like? And, and the stories would go, and, and, and we soon realized that after time, the stories changed a little bit. They got a little bit more embellishment. I mean, you could ask Pap this question. You know, he, he loved loved bridges. He just loved bridges. And, and, um, and I remember he was telling me, telling us about the bridges. See, Pittsburgh has a lot of beautiful bridges. And, and he would tell me the Roeblings were the ones who designed <clears throat> or built that bridge or this bridge. And, and the story would, so how did they build bridges? We'd get to the point. Yeah. And he'd tell us these stories. And I, and I know for a fact that he was embellishing the story because somewhere in that story, it was him building the bridge. It just got worse and worse and worse and crazier and crazier and crazier. And so I'm, we, Lisa and I moved to uh, Lexington and uh, we uh, um, go to seminary or we're, uh, there and, um, and we were undergrad there in the early 90s. And I, and I remember going to um, um, this place called High Bridge. Guess what it is? It's a high bridge. Yeah, I mean... The, 
Kentuckians, they got some creativity in naming, okay? It's high bridge. It's a really high bridge. It is the highest bridge in this hemisphere of a train truss, uh, trussle bridge, right? It, it is, it, it's, a, it's a large bridge. And so I'm going, and we go there, and we take a picture of that, that bridge. And we go to Pap, and we say, Pap, tell us about this bridge. Oh, it was built by the Roebling. And it was like, sooner or later, it got to him. Yeah, I remember we built a ladder there, and I climbed up that ladder, and we built it and stuff like that. So I went back, and I, and I, and I looked at the sign that actually commemorated that, that bridge. And guess what? The Roeblings built it. He was, he, he was the one who designed it. But he, my pap did not build a lot or ha, was not there, and he did not build that bridge. He had no part of it. You see, something about a story has this, 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 uh, this idea of half-truths, right? They're, they're far-fetched, and, and they always have, they're grounded in some sort of truth. But but if the story isn't true and you don't ever go to Pap and you don't ever call him on the carpet or your greatest storyteller and say, hey, listen, are you just telling me a story? Are you just telling me a story? If you never ask, and he, he, it's always the feeling that you're being just strung along or pull, your leg is being pulled. You see, the truth is, the longer someone pulls your leg, the longer someone pulls your leg, the more skeptical you become about anything that person says. Isn't that the truth? And so here's the tension for us today. What happens when people think God is pulling their leg? Telling them some kind of exaggerated story? just to lead them on. We believe in one way or another that God is this comedian and he's calling over his angels. Hey, Michael, hey, Gabriel, come over here. You'll get a laugh out of this. Watch what I tell these folks. He's gullible. She just, she just swallowed it like hook, line, and sinker. You've been told this story over and over again. Maybe, maybe if, when we believe that God is pulling our legs somewhere in your heart, you wonder if your heart, your leg is being pulled, but you're not sure. And in the uncertainty, you just never ask. And so you get to this place without any evidence that you just believe that God is pulling your leg. And what is the result of this? Listen, what is the result? You see, this is a very dangerous place to be in our faith. then become skeptical about everything else God says. Basically, we believe that all along God has had us here for his amusement. Now, if this is really where you're at in your relationship with God, do you know what happens the longer you believe it? The longer you believe it, that God is just pulling your head, leg, the more you believe that he is skeptical, the more you become skeptical about everything else he is saying. And the more you become skeptical, you eventually get to the place where you no longer trust anything God is saying. And because we're always wondering if this is the time or it's just another time that God is pulling our leg. 
Now, sitting here, I, I, I would imagine that there are some of you, if not the majority of you, who think, that's not me. I'd never believe that God is, is pulling my leg. I'd never think that God is giving me a half-truth. Maybe you think just because of this, where you're at, that you think it would be sacrilegious that you would believe something like that in church, right? You might believe that someone else might see that or think that, but be honest. Sometimes we do think that the stories are just a bit far-fetched. Or more practically, that God has told you something about his relationship with you, like he loves you, or you have sacred worth. It's real, and at that moment, there's nothing you could have convinced you otherwise. And then the next morning, all hell breaks loose in your life. And you wonder if God does really love you. Or that afternoon, you tell someone, yeah, I just great... I had this great feeling that God really loves me and they look at you and they furrow their brow and they say, you believe in that? And slowly the reality of that moment just sinks into the mire of doubt and skepticism. And we push back on God because if it's one thing that we do not like happening in our lives is anyone making a joke out of us. No one's going to pull our leg. No one's going to tease us. Nobody is going to mock me. All right, let me tell you a story about myself. There is no embellishment in this story. It was the summer of 1986. I, have ju I just got home from a youth trip to Colorado where thousands and thousands of youth in our denomination got together and they celebrated all the things that God is doing in their lives. And it was just great speakers. It was week long. And it was just wonderful in Boulder, Colorado. I got home with the idea of feel, this feeling that God wanted me to go into ministry. And so I come and I, was, uh, I come home and I'm all excited about this. And so I make this this, this promise to God that I would go into ministry. I would do that. But he would have to make it unmistakably clear. He'd have to make it unmistakably clear. So I told that to the church. I did. I was baptized after that, and I told that to the church. I gave my testimony before I was baptized, and I, and I told that to the church. See, all along, I was going to be a pharmacist. I was going to uh, take over my dad's business. I was going to do these things and whatnot. And, and, um, and so the, the way I framed that, and I really, truly, I was, being, uh, I was being honest to what God was telling me to do. I was being faithful that, that, that God, if you did not get, if I didn't get into pharmacy school, then I'd go into ministry. Guess what? I got into pharmacy school. It was 1990, I graduated from high school in the spring, and that fall I went to the University of Pittsburgh. I started the next, for the, uh, the, what was supposed to be the next five years, my, my courses in, in pharmacy. Four months later, or six months later, in March of 20, 1991, 
I'm at Allegheny Center Alliance Church, and I'm listening to Buster Sorey's preach. He's an evangelist. He was preaching to youth, but I was working, guess what, video camera, <laughs> and I was doing some technology things there. And I thought, man, this is a great message. These kids should get up and they should go down to the altar and give their life to God and go into ministry. I remember him saying, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Just imagine that maybe God might be calling you into ministry. And then it happened. And you're going to think I'm crazy. Maybe some of you might furrow your brow, but it's as if I felt this tap on my shoulder. I didn't. But in fact, it felt like I had this tap on my shoulder. And I heard my spirit tell me that God is speaking to you now. I sat my camera down. I walked down the center aisle. And I said, I give you, God, my life for ministry. I didn't know what that looked like, but I knew it wasn't going to be more pharmacy. And I knew that it was going to be in youth ministry and whatnot, so I knew that that was going to be the case and whatnot. And so I was really excited. I told my mom, and my mom was so excited. I told my best friend's mother, Vivian Vance, I told her, and she's so excited and giving me hugs and stuff like that. I told my grandma, and she was doubtful. Grandma said, what, what are people going to think? Told my youth pastor. You'd expect him to be excited, right? He, you know what he said? He said, John, yeah, that's all good and everything, but, you know, when you go to college, you need to get, like, an education degree because you need, this is his exact words, you'll need something to fall back on. As if I'm going to fail or as if God didn't really call me. Now, what was going on here? This is over the, the scope of four to six weeks after that moment. Was God pulling my leg? Was this all about getting me uh, into a place where my grandma or other people would furrow their brow and they'd look at me and say, are you crazy? Was God getting a good laugh at my expense? So I was a little hesitant, but guess what I did? I went and talked to my pastor. His advice to me was this. Do two things, John. Write down the experience with as much detail as possible about the experience and what you were feeling. That was number one. And then he said, find yourself a hook verse that you can go back to and remind yourself of this. Some verse in the Bible. Now, I got the first part. Okay, I understand what you're saying. But this hook verse, can you give me some ideas of what that might be? He said, nope, it's your hook verse. I could tell you my hook verse, but you need one. You need one. You see, the overarching story that Pastor Dave was telling me, or Doug was telling me, Pastor Doug, is that you are not being mocked by God. Satan is. Satan is the one who's exaggerating the story. Satan is the one who's putting people in your life that is, become, is making you feel doubtful. So let me walk through this text and give you just a few excerpts from this text about how Satan does this. This is in Genesis 3. We're all very familiar with this passage. And basically, here's how it begins. One day, he asked the woman, 
Satan asked the woman, the serpent asked the woman, did God really say to you not to eat the fruit from any tree in the garden? Now that's a half truth. Because God only told Adam not to eat of this tree, right? Not to eat of this tree. Eve's response, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Just a little smidge of doubt. In fact, this is what she says next. She continues, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. And then a little bit more she goes and says, for God said you must not eat of it or even touch it. And if you do, you will die. Now she is now embellishing a little bit because God never really said don't touch it. Maybe Adam, who heard that, because Adam's the one who got this command. Maybe Adam's the one, and he told Eve. Maybe Adam's the one who said, don't touch it. Don't eat it. Don't touch it. Don't even look at it, or you will die. Satan replies, you won't die. Dripping with, that's crazy. You're not going to die. See, the, the implication of dying is that you will drop dead right then. You're not going to drop dead, Eve. Again, I have truth. Eventually, they will die if they eat. Maybe not then, but it's a half-truth. Satan continues, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Don't pass over too quickly here. Subtly, Satan is doing something. He is marring. He is disfiguring God's character. As if to say that God doesn't have your best in mind. What God wants to do is he wants to, not, he wants to keep something back for himself. God, he, God's not letting you eat of this tree because he knows that once you do eat of this tree, you will be like him. And of course, that was what Satan wanted, right? That's what got him thrown out of heaven. He wanted to be like God. And maybe he embellishes that story. You see what happened to me? God knows that you will be like him. Knowing both good and evil. You see what Satan does here? Look what he does. Half-truths. He destroys the character of God. And this happens over and over and over since creation. The stories of my, me telling my family, my friends, really speak to you? Do, do you know what you're giving up? God wants you to go over there and get in ministry because he doesn't want you to have the finer things in life. He doesn't want you to have a good life. He wants to keep you few under wraps, half-truths, and gets us to a place where we think God's character, the very fabric of who God is, is deceitful. 
that he's holding something back. Eve was near the tree, close enough that they could reach up and eat of the fruit. This, this is what happens. And when we think God is pulling our leg, in reality, it is Satan that is doing this. Let me tell you other ways in, 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 that, that, God, that, that Satan mars the character of God. How about this verse right here? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. How many ways can Satan manipulate God's love? How many times can he say that, well, if God really loved you, would he not give you your heart's desire, your dreams, and your aspirations? God doesn't love you. He has no idea of you. How about this one? One, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Great verse that begins the greatest chapter in the Bible, in my opinion. There is your past because of the blood of Jesus. There is no condemnation. God is not keeping a record of those things. You're, he forgives you. And he throws you, the, your, your, your sin as far as the east is from the west, Right? But Satan tells us, yeah, but he wrote that before he really knew what you were going to do. He's going to bring it up over and over and over again. Do you see the truths that Satan can do, can do that to us? How about this one? Now to him, God, who is able to do far more abundantly than we ever asked for or think according to the power of the work that's within us. God's not powerful. He couldn't stop that, that horrible thing from happening in my life. So-and-so broke up with me. My loved one died. All these, how can God do abundantly more? Marring the character of God. Or how about this one? Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that I commanded you. Okay, that's a great thing that we're supposed to go. How about this last promise? And behold, I am with you. Right. Where were you when that happened? Do you see how easy it is to fall into this trap, to believe that God is pulling our leg for some malicious, in some malicious way that we become the butt of his jokes and he mocks us over and over and over again. You see, what's at stake in your, your faith is that usually after a long time of believing this, hearing this, in the subtle ways that Satan wants to manipulate this and tear down the character of God, what do you start to do? You start to compartmentalize your faith. That this becomes the venue that the only place that I can express my faith, right? But at work, I better not. We're out in the streets, no. 
Or you're in the line of, of, uh, of uh, Publix and you just feel in your heart that you should pay for the person's groceries behind you. What will everybody think? God, you don't work this way. You must be pulling my leg. And you go to God only as a last resort. Do you know what is more, even more horrible than compartmentalizing your faith? Younger people, do you know what happens when you go off to college or you, the older you get and you start to think back on, hey, God told me this, I remember this and promised this, and it becomes embellished in such a different way, an awkward way, and you start to, you start to hear the voice, did God really say that? And you believed it? That's Sunday school stuff. That's stuff that you just learn in VBS, right? And what happens when something really drastic happens in your life? You deconvert. You leave the faith altogether. 